welcome to the Eternia Review. My name is Ben. And I'm Truman. And we're going through week by week watching He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, the 1983 cartoon. This week, episode 15, Prince Adam No More. What's the Spider-Man reference? There's a one of the most famous Spider-Man issues. That's where Peter Parker quits being Spider-Man because he's finally had it with his bullshit life. And it, it came out like 1962. It's just one of the more iconic posters. You've seen like the image of like Spider-Man like walking into an alleyway with like the Spider-Man costume in a trash can. That's that issue. Huh. So did you find parallels between Spider-Man No More and Prince Adam's Troubles? Not explicitly. I will make a couple Spider-Man references for the course of this episode. Not clever ones, just obvious ones. I will hold you to that. We open on the spikes before Snake Mountain. Skeletor is having a party. A council party. There's Merman, Triclops, Beastman, Skeletor. But the party has turned a little sour Beastman is pleading for one more chance. So Skeletor's going off on a tirade about uh, how awful Beastman is. He's kicking him out. He's getting rid of him. Or you're done, Beastman. Throws in the harsh fur face. Meanwhile, Merman and Triclops are wondering what Beastman has done to deserve the tirade. And I think Triclops remarks that it's actually nothing that Beastman has done. Skeletor is taking out his frustration about being continually bested by He-Man on poor Beast-Man. Poor Beast-Man. He's like, I'm sorry. Skeletor goes so cruelly, not just kicking him out, but taking his whip away and tying a knot in it. Which I guess makes it worthless. Yeah, you know, a knot in a whip. You can't untie that. It's done. It's done now. He follows that up by raising his ram's horn scepter and zapping Beastman's council seat into gravel. I didn't know they considered it a council. They're like the Council of Evil or something? I guess so. You know, board members or council members. Councilman Beastman. Well, no longer Councilman Beastman. Beastman is in the middle of a you haven't seen the last of me speech when Skeletor presses a button and a little hole opens up in the ground, extremely Scooby-Doo style. Beastman drops down through the floor. Just following Skeletor's example of giving a good speech on the way out, you know, and doesn't even get the chance. Yeah, Skeletor will not be upstaged in show <laughs> skeletonship. Absolutely not. We cut over to Castle Eternia. So they have like a whole fleet of attack tracks there. Gotta be like 20 of them. Yeah, there's a ton of them. Do you think they all have the same AI or is it individual AIs in each of them? So one sort of king ai that controls a swarm of attack tracks or a bunch of individual ones it's a good question it's like an attack track hive mind that would make the attack track marginally cooler man-at-arms is preparing for randor's tour of eternia they're uh, working on some maintenance on one of the attack tracks orko's humming like a creep like just super weird humming while he's helping man-at-arms 
Which I don't know why Man at Arms would trust Orko to help him. Nothing that Orko does seems to go right. You're at least like bound for some sort of Orko shenanigan, which happens. Turbo Orko shenanigans in this case. Orko is complaining because he would like to be selected to go on the tour of Eternia. It's only going to be Randor, Man-at-Arms, and the Mightiest Warrior of Eternia. Randor's going to pick one more dude to be his honor guard. Orko wants to go so bad he flails his arms and trips or something like tripping for a flying, floating creature falling into the attack track. Where he lands and inadvertently closes the cockpit, presses some buttons, tries to get out, but... His voice command is not recognized. So the attack track goes on a rampage, like driving around, shooting things. I think that's the attack track doing that on purpose. Because like, if it didn't recognize the voice command, why would it open up any of the other controls at all, ever, to like shoot the cannons at the top? So I'm thinking the attack track thought it'd just be funny to just start shooting stuff. And he has an excuse. Oh, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm out of control. Orko's <laughs> in there. Bang, bang, bang. Pew, pew, pew. I like that theory a lot, and I think it may also be an expression of the pent-up rage of the artificial intelligence that's <laughs> trapped inside of the attack track. Yeah. Because it's not a couple of casual blasts or, like, half-hearted zaps at the wall. It is just going hog-wild. Yeah, it is, like, attempting to raise the castle. So much so that Prince Adam... In the middle of the courtyard, in the middle of the day. In front of God and everybody. Transforms into He-Man. I don't know how his secret is kept at all. Yeah, like, there are no other guards practicing in the courtyard or mechanics working on the fleet of attack tracks. Or like a janitor sweeping, like, through a window that looks out into the courtyard. And just a moment later, after, so He-Man throws his sword at the attack tracks track. This fouls it up. He extracts Orko and the day is saved. It seemed way too easy to do. Like, again, what is the point of those flippity floppity track tire things if they are so easily defeated by a sword into the ground? Like, he just he basically just sticks a stick in it, you know? And it just, like, stops. Like that thing where you're riding a bicycle and you wonder what happens if you shove a stick through the spokes while it's going? Except this is the pinnacle of all Eternian technology, housing one of the best AI in all of the land, and is defeated by a stick in a track. It is, to be fair, the sort of power stick. It is a, a special stick. The most powerful stick in the <laughs> universe. For doing a show about He-Man, I feel like we don't do that joke all that often. We don't want to overdo it. It's the most powerful joke in the universe. <laughs> And so right after this, King Randor walks out onto the balcony to see what the ruckus is all about. So he also, if he had shown up 30 seconds prior, would have seen his beloved son, Adam, transform. And the jig would have been up. When He-Man is rescuing Orko, he does, in his He-Man voice, command the attack track to stop. And it does recognize He-Man's voice, but not Orko's. Would you give Orko <laughs> admin controls over any sort of anything? That's a fair point. Orko's punishment for causing the mayhem is to help fix the attack track. He bangs on the 
track part half-heartedly with a hammer. Just some literal resin frasms. Randor is praising He-Man. So the praise is nice. He-Man, the people have come to respect you. You're a valued member of our society, and we're glad that we're on your side. It seems a little trite, given He-Man's ultimate and complete power over everything. Yeah, like, if Randor really uh, acknowledged it, like, he he's living at the whim of He-Man, right? <laughs> He-Man could literally do whatever he wanted. Yeah. Nothing could stop his muscles. Yeah, so King Randor is perpetually living in fear and sort of lying to himself as he praises He-Man. He does, you know, use like sort of language like young man and sort of stuff like that. So maybe he's reinforcing in like a political way that he's the elder to He-Man's younger to get whatever authority he can over He-Man. We cut over to Adam and Man-at-Arms who are talking. Adam is lamenting that he probably, he really wants to go on the trip and prove himself to King Randor. Man-at-Arms is like, you know, uh, I don't know how much King Randor respects you. Adam says, I act like a goof, but it's to hide my identity and I know that my father still, you know, believes in me and values me. And Man-at-Arms gives another like, eh. Well. There's a lot of character development, or at least character expression in this episode. Like with this, with Adam, like, wishing his dad respected him instead of He-Man. And like, I don't know, Beast-Man getting kicked out of the Council of Evil and sniveling. Yeah, we get a lot of both how the characters view themselves, but also, at least with Adam and Randor, a lot of their relationship dynamics are made much more explicit in this episode. Adam and Man-at-Arms approach King Randor, Adam looking hopeful, but Randor has picked He-Man to go on the trip. Is that irony? Like, dramatic irony? Not like Alanis said irony? That, like... <laughs> Prince Adam wants his dad to choose him, but instead of choosing him, Prince uh, the Randor chooses He-Man, who is also Prince Adam. So like he gets to go, but not in the way he wants. Yeah, it is. I think that is dramatic irony. It is a little Shakespearean tragic mm. comedy, even. Yeah, it is. And there's this, just a sprinkling of Alanis Morissette irony in it, too. Uh, listeners, send us your cover versions of Alanis <laughs> Morissette's Isn't It Ironic, but with He-Man and the Masters of the Universe lyrics, hello at eterniareview.com. It's like rain on your wedding day. <laughs> A free ride when you've already paid. Oh my God. Uh, thank you, Ben. That was incredible. That is, that is my Skeletor quote of the week. Uh, check the box. Oh, <laughs> uh, Okay, so, uh, yeah, in an ironic twist of fate, He-Man has been selected for the tour of Eternia and not Prince Adam. Randor explains that Adam has not really shown any interest in state affairs and really needs someone more capable to come along on the trip. Someone like He-Man. Adam goes off to sulk at Castle Grayskull 
we cut over to him and the sorceress having a conversation. Like a deep one too. Like he's like, what, what good is like, you know, being he man, if my father doesn't respect me as me, you know, like, can I not reveal to him? Why do I have to keep this secret? And the sorceress is like for reasons. Yeah. Which boiled down to what we had already surmised. I don't know, back in episode two or three or something, the sorceress explains that, okay, if Skeletor knew He-Man's true identity, Skeletor would stop at nothing to destroy both Prince Adam and everyone that he loves. The criticism to that line of thinking, which I think we did discuss, is that uh, isn't Skeletor already hell-bent on that exact task? Yeah, 100%. It is a useless distinction to make He-Man and Prince Adam different people. Serves no purpose, as far as that's concerned, anyways. Because they're already kidnapped all the time. Yeah, that has happened several times. So is this... Did they have two action figures that they wanted to sell? I mean, that and having a kid being able to yell at something that'll transform him into the most powerful man in the universe. Yeah, considerably more relatable. How many superheroes are just superheroes all the time? Not many. I mean, like, in the new Marvel movies, they don't really have a secret identity. Like, Tony Stark did away with that. Like, they don't really hide themselves. I guess Spider-Man in the new movies does still, because that was, like, a big thing. Other than that, I mean, Thor. But even the old comic books, he had an alternate ego. Uh, What about that blue glowing dude from the Watchmen? Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, he was just Dr. Manhattan. He didn't have an alter ego. Sort of hard to hide when your whole body glows. Yeah, I mean, you can put a suit on, but you're still glowing. Mr. Manhattan, you are really into latex rubber, huh? (laughs) So it's sort of the thing to do. You have your relatable character, and you have the thing that you can daydream about turning into. It's part of the whole appeal. Part of the power fantasy that if only like everyone, only people really knew who I really was, they would know how powerful and strong I am. Yep. Which literally is playing out in this episode. We cut over to Beastman, who is also having a little bit of a pity party among a crowd of shadow beasts. Are these the same shadow beasts that did Tila fight off shadow beasts? Weren't they literally shadow beasts? Because now they're not shadows. They're beasts. Back in Tila's quest on her way to the Crystal Sea, what is what is Eternia Review the Podcast doing to my brain? Did you remember this from the second episode we watched? Exactly. Uh, they were more shadowy in that episode, and here they're more... They're very distinct. Uh, they look like bipedal ape creatures with unicorn horns. That is pretty much what they are. Beastman is lamenting about being kicked out of Snake Mountain. The Shadow Beasts give a chorus of screeches in sympathy, so that's nice. He's having a real bad day. There's even a, I don't know what he called it, this little squirrel creature. He asks for it to give him something, like a fruit from a tree, and the squirrel chucks it at his face and it splashes all over his face, as if his day was not bad enough. To be fair, the squirrel literally had a mohawk and so would you expect sympathy from such a punk rock creature no no sympathy squirrel's really saying you got to get it together man get out of this wallowing stand back up on your furry feet do you think the soul searching that beast man and he man 
or rather Prince Adam are doing are meant to be like reflections of one another or symmetrical in some way or something. I mean, probably in some way. So Prince Adam's going on this journey of like his dad doesn't respect him as himself, respects like this version of himself. Beastman is kicked out of like the only job he's ever been able to keep for longer than two weeks. And he's wanting to show like his best version of himself and prove that he's worthwhile, right? So I guess it's a similar journey about proving oneself to one's peers or, you know, betters or whatever, what have you. I don't know if it qualifies as a good use of a storytelling technique, but I will say that it is one of the first uses of any <laughs> storytelling technique that we've seen so far in He-Man. Yeah, it is pretty good. I mean, it's pretty good because we've been watching like, you know, just inanity for like the last 14 episodes. So now there's actual effort being put into the characters. Yeah. And even the smallest amount of effort reads as some poignancy and actual constructed uh, storytelling structure. I mean, when you're used to looking at a puddle, staring at a stream can seem pretty deep. Uh, yeah, that's good. Adam has inserted himself into the trip. We cut away from Beastman wiping fruit juice off of his face to Randor man-at-arms and Adam in the attack track starting their tour of Eternia. Is this when they show the map? I miss the map. You miss the map because the map is amazing. You need to look up the map. It's like, I'm not even kidding. Sincerely, like my Stockholm Syndrome went straight. It's clicked now. I am now fully committed. <laughs> um, describe the Eternia map for me and for our listeners. So it's this cruelly drawn map and it has just, just create like some labels that are vary from like the Great Waste to the Northwest. Emerald City to the northeast. In the center, you got Dristo City. There's a like a river called like the Rolnik River. There's some lake like the Hirsch and blah, 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 blah Lake. To the north, you have the Evil Area. Uh, the very south, you have the Bad Mountains. And north of that, you have this forest. Literally this forest. Does it, it just, did Randor like write that in real quick? It's right there. It just says this forest. Just north of the Bad Mountains, you have this forest. <laughs> and like they in the dialogue, they talk about it and they say, you know, once we get out of this forest, <laughs> we'll be at Dristal City. So, okay, if you, listener, Google Prince Adam No More He-Man, you should be able to find a link to the He-Man fandom wiki. And there is a picture of the map in that article. It is worth looking up. It is amazing. It, I like saw that map, saw that it said this forest, and I am I am now on board with whatever they want to do for at least the next uh, half episode. <laughs> whatever misgivings you may have had about He-Man, uh, which I don't know, you have somehow, even though we've watched now 15 episodes of the show, but they've been banished now. Yeah. Uh, it's incredible. Oh, and they also have... I missed this now that I'm looking at the actual picture. There's a Joan Rivers, like really <laughs> scribbled on, like just coming out of the Great Waste. It says Joan Rivers on a river. This is just a beautiful map. It really is. It's mostly this forest. Uh, okay, so while we're here, Hershon Lake is named after the senior storyboard artist, West Hershon. Shone. Rolnick River is another storyboard, storyboard artist, Shara Rolnick. 
and the Joan River is, in fact, a reference to Joan Rivers, the comedian and talk show host. Emerald City may be a reference to the Wizard of Oz. Maybe, or quite literally, the Wizard of Oz. So the attack track is rolling through this forest, consequently where Beastman is sulking with the Shadow Beasts. Beastman decides to take action and believes that this is his shot to get back into the good graces of Skeletor. Yeah, he notes the king doesn't even have a bodyguard. Should be easy pickings. Yeah, poor Prince Adam, disrespected at all turns. The Shadow Beasts lead the assault on the attack track. Man-at-Arms mentions that they have somehow shorted the generator. So they actually do reference the fact that the attack track should be able to electrocute them. No plot hole. Thank you, He-Man. They have somehow dodged it. This is a tight episode. They did a lot of good work on this episode. The attack track is barreling forward, a little uncontrolled. Shadow Beasts mauling it. Beastman shoves over a tree right in the attack track's path. The attack track runs straight into it and crashes. The Shadow Beasts pry open the doors. Adam jumps out and tries to grab a freeze ray but Beastman grabs him from behind. Uh, no point does he even like begin to transform into He-Man because he wants to prove to his dad that he could do it. But he cannot. No. Do you think Prince Adam like isn't strong? I mean, he's a pretty swole dude without holding the power of Grayskull. Like, is he just not strong enough to like fight at all? Like, they're all glamour muscles. It's like a heavy lifter. But it only it's like a display, not like a like the barrel chest. And it's like the difference between, you know, your Arnold Schwarzenegger type with all the display muscles and the barrel chested uh, strongman competition guys that like look like they drink like three kegs of beer a day. Mm-hmm. But they can lift like actual boulders, whereas the display model can't really. Yeah, I wouldn't say that too close to oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Face. He could kick my ass. Not that he would. He's a beautiful human being, but like. He could. But could maybe not fight a uh, beast man who has the power of beasts. Beast <laughs> yeah. The proportionate uh, strength of a beast. <laughs> it's either that or Prince Adam is wearing one of those foam muscle suits underneath his clothes all the time. Yeah. The shadow beast grab Randor. Beastman instructs Adam and man at arms to bring all the gold from Castle Eternia to Snake Mountain if they ever want to see King Randor again. It's like he can't even come up with a number. He likes the imagination to like name something. He just says, bring me all your gold. Yeah. Proportionate brain power of a beast as well. <laughs> a beast. Beastman freezes Adam and Man-at-Arms with the freeze ray so that they cannot follow him. And he pieces out. We cut over to Snake Mountain. Beastman is taunting King Randor. Uh, saying, oh, Prince Adam and Man-at-Arms will bring all of the gold of Castle Eternia, and then I'll nab them too, and then I'll really show Skeletor how, I don't know, powerful I am. He brings Randor in the, through the halls of Snake Castle and finds Merman on guard duty, because everybody else is gone on a destruction mission. Yeah, <laughs> destruction unspecified. Well, it's in space, is what we know. Mm-hmm. A destruction mission in space. A couple questions. Yes. What is there to destroy in space? There's the moon base. There's more in space, right? So 
that is that's just open-ended like i'm i want to know what's in space they just go to space is that a thing they do all the time we've only seen them at this point we've only seen them go to the moon and then kind of transport dimensionally elsewhere yeah we did see in one of the earlier episodes when queen marlena is recounting her journey from earth is caught in a asteroid shower and crash lands on planet Eternia. Mm-hmm. We do see some of the like celestial bodies that surround the planet. I think we've seen a lot of like weird looking moons or I don't know. It's just a, it's a really dense area of space based on the little cuts that we've seen. Second question. Yeah. The way that this kind of comes off is like, this is like a regular scheduled thing. Like this is a destruction mission. That's part of our, thing as the council of evil we have to go do certain things of destruction and so he's like gotten everybody together to go do a destruction mission it's like a thing it seemed regular you know the way that merman said it's oh yeah they're on a destruction mission and beastman's like oh okay uh yeah i I have a theory about what uh the destruction mission means what what do you got so earlier in this episode the the inciting action is that skeletor is ranting at beastman but really, it's because Skeletor is taking out his frustration about being bested by He-Man. This happens all the time. 15 times so far that we've seen. Yeah. I think a destruction mission is Skeletor taking the team out into space. And they, like, get their paints. Skeletor is a model builder, we've seen. He's pretty crafty. They get their paints and, you know, maybe their foam and stuff like that. They set up little dummies that look like He-Man, but with like really dumb face. And then they take turns blasting it with the, their spaceships while they're, oh yeah, oh, we got him. We got him. Oh, look at he dumb, dumb He-Man. Oh, we got him. We got him. <laughs> so this is a team building exercise to improve crew morale. <laughs> yeah, which is why Merman is really sad that he got left behind on guard. Yeah. Duty. I wanted to shoot the big laser cannon this time. <laughs> yeah. I'm on board. That's awesome. It's like the He-Man version of uh, getting in your truck with your friends, going out into the country with a cooler full of beer and just shooting cans or whatever in the desert. Blowing out some steam. They also feature the intruder alarm because Beastman is leading King Randor into Snake Mountain and there is a little device that sticks out of the wall and seems to shine a laser beam across the path. And it's when Beastman breaks the beam that Merman is alerted to uh, what's going on. It does not seem to serve any purpose. They use it once more in the episode. They go out of their way to show that it is a thing, but for no reason, really. Yeah, because it trips when Beastman, like an idiot, walks right through it because he doesn't know it's there or whatever he just walks right through it which alerts merman to his presence and later it's like easily avoided it's literally just like a light beam about ankle heights off the floor yeah nonetheless uh beastman puts randor in the dungeons and then beastman and merman celebrate their impending victory over uh eternia We cut back over to Adam, who is lamenting his failure to stop Randor's abduction to Man-at-Arms. And Man-at-Arms, like, 
dresses him down by saying like, well, you know, you were given this power to like help people, protect people. No one ever said you could use that power to make yourself happy. Ouch. Right? Like, what? I mean, first of all, he wasn't using his power. I mean, he's right that he didn't use his power to protect somebody because he wanted to be happy. But he wouldn't be using the power to make himself happy. He's trying to be happy without the power. That part of it bugged me. It's a pretty weird explanation. Also, if Prince Adam had taken the opportunity to transform, unless he did it when Randor was, I don't know, startled by a shadow beast, totally would have revealed himself. Even if Randor didn't see, oh, He-Man showed up for some reason out of nowhere and Adam disappeared for a minute. I wonder what that's about. Like, he didn't have the opportunity to transform anyway. Yeah, it would have made it explicitly clear. Although, I'm sure people could watch him transform and not put it together. Adam accepts the weird dressing down that Man-at-Arms gives. And there's only one thing to do... Uh, summon up your grit and go after your father as Prince Adam. No, this is He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, so we transform into He-Man to go save the day. Beastman and Merman are feasting on giant turkey legs and sipping from jeweled goblets when He-Man rolls up on one of those flying hover bikes. They're having like a heart-to-heart. They're like, you know, Merman's like, hey, like, why did you come back? Like, you know, what are you doing after the way they treated you and you're trying to come back here? Yeah, what does Beastman say to that? I don't remember. He says something along the lines of like, oh, you know, Skeletor, you wouldn't be anything without me. You know, like that bone face wouldn't make it a day or whatever. Like that's that's kind of why it's just this textbook abusive relationship. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because you think the person needs you, so you have to come back until they kick you out again. Yeah, Skeletor literally pulled the ground from under you, Beastman, and shot shot you down into the, I don't know, dungeon or whatever that leaves. He tied a knot into your whip, <laughs> and you come crawling back to him. <laughs> and zapped your council seat. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here, they make it a point to show the intruder alarm again, but as you mentioned, He-Man just jumps over it. And he jumps over it. He just stepped over it. Yeah. Just, but they make a point of him jumping and doing like a brawl. The action shots in this show are so ridiculous. <laughs> Merman thinks he heard something. Beastman says it's nothing and they go back to feasting. He-Man makes it to the dungeons. He's, there's, he like goes to one cage and it's not the king. It's like some squid monster. Yeah, these purple octopus arms reach out of the bars, which... Okay, not really the appropriate environment to keep a squid or octopus. No, not at all. You'd think Beastman would at least care enough about the animals of the world to put an octopus in a correct environment to contain it. And, like, what is Skeletor doing with that thing? Saving it for a rainy day when he needs uh, an amphibious invasion of Eternia somehow, which there are no rivers or lakes, so I don't know what it would be good for, but... no. Well, I guess there are rivers. There's the Joan River and the the other river, the Rolnick River, and then the Lake. So, yeah. So in classic Skeletor fashion, it'll be first. I will use this ancient artifact to summon water to engulf the world, and then I will unleash my purple kraken squid, which 
foolproof, destroy, He-Man, something, something, something. Then while they're distracted, I'll go to Castle Grayskull. <laughs> He-Man saves the day by, I don't know, punching a hole in the ground and all the water drains out through it. Literally the, the plot of a different episode that we watched, actually. Yep. Fortunately, the second cell that He-Man checks is King Randor. Randor is feisty. Yeah. So this trips the prisoner alarm. He rips off the bars of the, the cell, and that trips off the alarm. Beastman sends Skeletor's floating robot army after King Randor. He-Man says, hey, take a step back, and I'll take care of this. Randor's like, nah, I'm in. <laughs> Adam doesn't know it, but I used to be quite the scrapper back in my day. <laughs> yeah, he's got this really great pose, too, where uh, he mugs the camera, looks straight at you, holds up his right arm, does the muscle <laughs> yeah. motion, and grabs his bicep with his other arm. What I used to do when I was eight, and I was <laughs> trying to impress my mom. Yeah, and you use your... You hold your yeah. arm up and then, yeah, use your hand to push up your bicep muscle a little bit. <laughs> so strong, Mom. So strong. <laughs> but hey, he holds his own in the fight. Like, at, He-Man's like, okay, I guess. And the king summons a mace out of nowhere and starts whacking robots into walls and shit. There's, for some reason, there's a mace, like, stuck into the wall, like a torch sconce or something. And he, mm-hmm. King Randor grabs it and uses it as a weapon. And he beats the crap out of some robots. After the robot fighting, Randor is concerned about Adam. Sort of opines that he cares a lot about Adam, but it's just hard to say I love you sometimes. It it just... And He-Man says, like, you know, I think Prince Adam has trouble saying I love you too. And it's like, Jesus Christ. Like, this is literally a metaphor for masculinity. Two men who can't say I love you face to face, so they say it to other men when literally they're saying it to each other right then, you know? Yep. So I I am of the opinion that Randor knows that Prince Adam's He-Man and is taking this opportunity to tell his son that he loves him, even though he can't make explicitly acknowledge it. Oh, sort of a wink-wink nudge situation. This is the first time Randor and, and He-Man, as He-Man, have had a one-on-one by themselves conversation. So Randor doesn't have the courage to show his feelings to his son. Instead, he hides behind the illusion that He-Man is not his son and uses that opportunity to express his feelings. I like that theory a lot. It would be interesting if He-Man ever explored that theme. <laughs> Do you think it will? Only one way to find out. Yeah, let's keep watching. Oh, God. Only 115 episodes. Oh, man. (laughs) After the robots are defeated and Randor and He-Man have a sidestep heart-to-heart, Merman and Beastman show up in one of the hover ships and they start fighting. Merman sort of gets thrown immediately into the octopus jail. Beastman attempts to run he-man over with the spaceship and this episode also not a great one for puns yeah not really here is the best worst joke that i found in this episode which is that he-man sidesteps beast man and the hover ship and says it's not nice to sneak up on people and then like punches beast man 
I mean, that is the best worst joke. There are plenty of best jokes on that map. Oh, that's very true. Yeah, the best joke is the visual of that map earlier. This is the best worst joke. The map genuinely made me like laugh out loud while I was watching. <laughs> I must have been taking notes during uh, that quick scene. Mermian berates Beastman. Uh, Skeletor is going to come back. Dad is going to be so angry. This place is <laughs> trashed. Beastman goes off on a rant about he doesn't care about Skeletor. That guy's a buffoon. If I were in charge, I'd be so great. Skeletor's the worst. He's so dumb and has an ugly face, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, Skeletor is standing right behind him. <gasps> yeah, classic talking bad about the person that you don't realize is right there. Skeletor, for his part, uh, just tells Beastman and Merman to clean up the mess. And Beastman's like, it's great to be back home. So happy ending for Beastman and the weird relationship that he and Skeletor have. Oh, the destruction mission must have blown off enough steam for Skeletor that he's cooled off enough to accept Beastman back into the fold. Yep. He probably didn't mean it. We cut back over to Randor, Adam, and Man-at-Arms back in the attack track, continuing their tour of Eternia. Adam sort of playfully tips his hand about He-Man, comments something about how Randor has a great left hook. Which is something that Randor said in after the fight. He's like, I bet you Prince Adam wouldn't be surprised if he could see me. You know, he doesn't understand how, like, his dad's got a great left hook or something. And then Prince Adam here at the end brings it up in exactly the same phrasing. He's got a great left hook. And Randor's like, what? No. Yeah. Which I don't know if that leads credence to the theory that Randor knows he means identity. But he could just be playing it up for, yeah, the audience of Adam, Man-at-Arms, and himself. To maintain the illusion. So, what did you learn this episode, Ben? I'm going to keep with a Spider-Man reference. Well, I'm going to bring back the Spider-Man and say that today's lesson is that with great power comes great responsibility. Which I even touched on in this episode at a point. Yeah, both in the sorceress counseling of He-Man... Uh, you can't let everybody know or else your family will be in danger. And Man-at-Arms uh, telling He-Man that his power is meant to protect other people and not for He-Man's own happiness. Mm-hmm. You are wrong. I, you know. <laughs> we haven't, neither of us have gotten one of these even partially correct in quite a while. Yeah, not a long time. We're at like one attorney in silver a piece or something. I stopped keeping track because we were just so off all the time. Orko floats into the scene. Today's story was about love, but a very special kind. It was about the love a parent has for a child. And I bet that's the strongest love there is. Because for one thing, there's just about nothing that can change it, no matter what. Maybe, like Adam's father, your parents find it a little difficult to say, I love you. Even so, you can be sure they do. Besides, let me ask you something. When was the last time you said, I love you, to them? Bye. Aw. Aw. <laughs> it can be an awe outside the sneezes. That's nice. It's nice in a way that's comforting a child who's having an exceedingly cold and sad childhood. True. I mean, like, if your parent says, I love you enough, I guess you'd know it. I mean, it's nice. Yeah. It's no Spider-Man moral, but it's nice. Yeah, it just makes me wonder about the state of family life in the 80s. Or, 
the folks writing this are like in their 20s, 30s, or 40s, so the state of family life in the 50s, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it's one step, like, between now and then, right? Like, the 80s cartoons written by these guys who, like, had that childhood growing up and, like, think that that's something that children should know is that their parents love them, even if they can't express it. And now it's like, you know, statistically, fathers are more involved in their kids' lives than they've ever have been. So that's the real power of He-Man, is what you're saying, Ben. Yeah, that's nice. So no cringer this episode. I didn't notice that. You're right. He would. He didn't show up at all. Not even once. And yet Prince Adam is still able to transform into He-Man. And honestly, he didn't really need Cringer. So, like, does he need to force Cringer to become Battle Cat at all, ever? I mean, I guess there's times where Battle Cat does things, but... Yeah, uh, probably not. Hmm. It also makes me wonder, is there something special about Cringer? He's not a requirement for the magic ritual to transform into He-Man. Is there anything stopping Prince Adam from pointing the power sword at... I don't know, Man-at-Arms, Randor, uh, Orko. Rock, Orko. Yeah, the thing that, that's common sense is what's stopping him from pointing it at Orko. <laughs> what do you think it would happen if he pointed it at uh, Ram Man? He'd just grow like three feet to normal proportion. His concussions would go away. Like blink and all of a sudden, like a moment of clarity. and like, oh my God, what am I, what's, what's happened to me? I really got to get a better helmet if I'm going to keep doing this. To bring back the Spider-Man parallel, I looked up the brief plot of the issue of Spider-Man No More. Uh, so the storyline runs from Amazing Spider-Man 50, 51, and 52. So like 1962. And in it, uh, Peter Parker quits being Spider-Man because he gets no respect no matter how many people he saves. Mm. It's also the introduction of the Kingpin is in this storyline. But yeah, so that's, that, that matches up with this episode... And that, you know, Prince Adam wants respect, so he's giving up the mantle of the superhero in order to get respect from someone. Yeah, that's pretty good. Good homage, He-Man. Yeah, excellent work. Actually, I don't think I have anything else this episode. I don't either. We covered all the things that I came up for me when we were going through it. I think we've started to do that more, like all the things that I think of that come up in more. Yeah, it's because we're getting good at cohesive literary analysis. Mm-hmm. More or less. Getting good at making something cohesive out of something incomprehensible. <laughs> yep. Um, all right. Well, thanks, listeners. Shoot us an email with your Eternian ironic thoughts or videos of you covering Alanis Morissette. Hello at attorneyreview.com. We'll see you next time on the Attorney Review. <laughs>